0: You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today is all about monkey flowers. Joining us to share her passion for these plants is Dr. Naomi Fraga, and she has broad interests that include variation of flower color, plant rarity, evolutionary relationships, and taxonomy. In fact, she has five new species of monkey flower to her name, it's pretty cool. I think you're really gonna enjoy this because she's got a lot of really great insights into not only just taxonomy and evolution, but also botany as a whole, and the importance of bringing plants to the forefront of people's focus. So let's jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Fraga. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Naomi Fraga, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do?
0: So, I direct a conservation program, a plant conservation program at a botanic garden called Rancho Santa Ana Botanic Garden, which is located in Southern California in a little town called Claremont. And there I do a wide variety of research focused on rare plants, um, monkey flowers, the flora of California. Um really it's I anything to do with California plants and conservation I get to work on which is really exciting for me because I love California and I love plants. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so I do a lot of field research documenting plants of California sometimes you know we have found you know undescribed species and mm-hmm. all kinds of exciting things so we're just really into kind of documenting and understanding all the basic baseline information of California native plants. Where do plants grow? Where do they all occur? Are there still undescribed species out there? Yes, we know that. Where are they? And so, yeah.
1: Excellent. And that sounds like a charming position to be in. I know you from our friend Joey, a mutual friend of ours, but I also follow you on Instagram. Absolutely love your account. And it's very clear to me that you love botany, but have you always loved botany or is this something you kind of came to a little bit later?
0: I did come to botany a little bit later. Now that I am a botanist working as a botanist in California, I can't imagine my life without <laughs> I mean, it's such a fundamental part of who I am and what I do. It's really, I feel like central to my current existence, but I grew up in California, so I'm, I'm native to Southern California, but I didn't know anything about California native plants throughout my whole childhood until I came to college um, I didn't start off as a biology major I was kind of venturing off into you know sociology thinking I was going to become a social worker hmm. <laughs> uh, and trying other things and then I took a class a psychology class actually called mind brain and behavior which focused on the biological aspects of the brain and mental illness and that's when I was like I really love biology <laughs> like I think I need to switch to being a biology major nice. I didn't really know anything about botany or plants, um, but I I was just kind of perusing for volunteer opportunities in my local area, and I found a botanic garden, and I thought, well, that's related to biology. Maybe that'll be okay. And so I contacted them, and then I got an interview with the curator of the herbarium, and he asked me if I liked plants. I remember that question very clearly, and I thought, well, I don't not like plants. (laughs) Sure, why not? and he said when I said I'm really good with computers I can do data entry." And he's like okay come in next week (laughs) nice so I started volunteering and um, it was really the people behind the plants that brought me into the fold they um, were so infectious about their enthusiasm for what they did they were so passionate about plants all they did was talk about plants all day and I was like these people really love what they're doing they have to have something right here like I got to learn more about plants because it's bringing, clearly bringing them a lot of joy. <laughs> so I just I, this is where I worked. The place I started volunteering at was Rancho Santa Ana Botanic Garden. It's where I work today. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so I've been here for quite a long time, and I've grown up here as a botanist. I did um, my formal education. I did a bachelor's degree at Cal Poly Pomona, which was not too far away. Then eventually got a master's and a Ph.D. in botany, and all along the way, I was working at the garden. And it's really a very special place to me because I feel like it really transformed my life. It brought plants into my life. And my life today is amazing because I, I love what I do. I love plants and I love sharing with the world the importance of plants and understanding how valuable they are to our existence and everything that we do and how they touch our lives every day. And the fact that I didn't know that, I didn't know how plants were fundamental to my life, you know, and didn't have that connection. I felt like, gosh, I was so deprived as a kid. But now I feel very privileged. I feel very privileged to know know plants in a very intimate way and that I'm still learning and growing and knowing about them and that I can share that and give that back to my community is uh, very important to me.
1: Oh, that's a fantastic trajectory. Look what those people did to you. <laughs> but, I mean, that's such a nice thing to hear because so many people kind of flounder for a little bit until they find that thing that really sets them off. And obviously now you are completely steeped in the world of botany. Uh, and and throughout that trajectory, I'm sure you've learned a lot and gotten to be able to be involved in a lot of different aspects of botany. But where would you say, I think, now your career is underway and you're you're plugging along and obviously you're outside doing stuff with California's flora, where would you say you've kind of started to hone your interests over the the more recent period of your career?
0: Yeah, I when I first started, I was really focused. I just I wanted to know plants. Like, I wanted to be really good at plant identification and understand the diversity in California. So that was like my major focus, and I was all botany all the time. And I was like very strict. <laughs> like, I want to be a field botanist. I want to be like the best field botanist. And I just gotta like immerse myself in plants. And now I'm. I've gained a lot of information about plants and plant diversity, and I'm very much in the mode of wanting to share the love and the knowledge with my community and giving back to. So, for instance, every year I go back to my high school and I do like a career day. And so I'm very interested in actually working. So I grew up in like a suburban urban environment, and I've done a lot of my work in the wilderness of California. But I want to kind of bring it back to the city and give botany to like the masses of people in Los Angeles and the community. And it's like a very ambitious thing, and I don't know yet how I'm going to tackle it or how I'm going to do that. But my goal is to get people of Los Angeles to embrace California for what it is in terms of its natural history and to kind of make California, California again, you know, rather than like all the lush vegetation that people can grow and bringing plants from the outside to get people to actually appreciate the plants that are native here. Cause they tell you so much about the environment and how we're water limited or just what resources are present in the environment. Plants let you know about where you live. And so I think to bring the native plants back to the urban areas, will allow people to kind of reconnect with where they're living or actually connect maybe for the first time in a more authentic way of where they're at. So that's my goal is to bring botany to the urban environment in a way that hasn't, I don't think, been present for like 100 years or more. (laughs) Yeah,
1: for sure. And that is incredible. I mean, you've mirrored so many of the sentiments in a way that's very palpable, right? I mean, to know what's going on with your native flora is to know your region. And and I really like that connection that you made between kind of how these plants live and, and what that can tell you about the world around you. And in thinking about this, you know, California's got an incredibly diverse flora. I'm only beginning to scratch the surface just following pages like yours or, you know, sitting on Cal Flora and just going through and going like, what the heck is that? I didn't know there were so many of those. And it's got to feel kind of daunting, especially when you look at like where your research has gone, your publications, I mean, rarity, evolutionary relationships, taxonomy, that's a broad spectrum of things. And and I wonder if that, um, you know, do you feel like that kind of is tough to do in a state like California? Or do you see that as sort of like, a oh, boy, I get to learn so much?
0: I think that it's a, a really an incredible opportunity to live in a state that is this incredible living laboratory where people come from all over the world to study California plants. And here I am a botanist and I'm like, I'm living here, you know. <laughs> in this place that has the highest elevation in the continental United States and the lowest elevation and all this, the geologic substrates and everything in between. And with that comes incredible botanical diversity. And so you have researchers who come from all over the world to study California plants in our systems. And you also have tourists who come from all over the world to see our plants, to see the giant redwoods and the bristle cones and the Joshua trees. And so we have these. Very very iconic plants and it tells an incredible story about evolution and natural history and so I think that's only an opportunity to take advantage of to both communicate that to a large audience but then also to be able to research that as a botanist and to understand the role, you know, that geology or climate or topography has on diversification of different plant lineages. It's just like, it's like a living laboratory, amazing, incredible diversity.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the best way you could possibly put it is, is to try and appreciate the endemism. And I feel like California is such a hot spot because of all the reasons you mentioned. And and it's got to feel a little daunting as someone who loves plants to try and pick something out of that, like looking like, oh, I want to look at that. Now I want to look at this. I want to look at this. But one group that's really seemed to have captured your attention as you mentioned a little bit earlier, is the monkey flowers. Now, where did that come from? What are these plants? And and why are they so special to you? And then we can kind of get into why they are special in terms of life on this planet.
0: Um, Yeah, I uh, discovered monkey flowers pretty early on in my budding botanical career. When I was an undergraduate, I remember making a botanical collection of the bush monkey flower. And I remember thinking, I'm like, oh, these press so beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) They're so wonderful. And that was like my first introduction to monkey flowers was the bush monkey flowers, which I think for a lot of people, that's the first, that's like the intro monkey flower. Hmm. And then working on my master's degree, I was doing a botanical inventory in the southern Sierra Nevada, and I was taking a class to pick a rare plant and write a conservation plan about that rare plant. And I was trying, I wanted to pick a plant that was kind of in the region I was working on, and I found a monkey flower that's called the Kelso Creek monkey flower. Its name is Erythranthe shivakii, and I saw a picture of it, and I was like, this monkey flower is wild. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It has maroon and lobes and yellow lobes, so it had two different colors on the flower, and it was really tiny, and just the orientation, the symmetry of the flower is kind of crazy, and I thought, I have to see this plant in the wild. This is really kind of a special plant, and it was being impacted by development and um, agriculture. And not a lot was known about it. So I thought it was a good candidate to research and develop a conservation plan. So I worked on that, and I developed a publication out of that. And and then I learned about all of its relatives, its very close relatives, um, which is a clade of about 16 species. And I thought, well, I, I had graduated with my master's thesis, and I was taking a break and working. And I thought, you know, these monkey flowers... If I'm going to go on to pursue my doctoral studies, these monkey flowers, this is the group for me because they exhibit a lot of endemism. So many of them are naturally rare. And I was interested in plant conservation and many of them have many threats that cause them to be endangered, which exacerbates their already natural rarity. So, I thought, well, I'm interested in plant conservation. Here's a group of conservation importance. They're incredible, incredibly beautiful. They're hard to find. They're annuals. And I love annual plants because they're in California. We have so many that are teeny tiny and they call them belly flowers. And you have to like have an eagle eye, you know, to really kind of spot them out. And it was like a challenge to me. It's like, can I find all the little teeny tiny flowers? And so, for me, it was the perfect group that complemented a lot of my interests. And so I decided that my dissertation research would focus on this particular group of monkey flowers that were the close relatives of the Kelso Creek monkey flower. Huh.
1: What a great setup to what is a you know prolific scientific career in, in studying a, a taxonomic unit like the monkey flowers. But for those that aren't familiar, or if you're like me and you don't get exposure to all the crazy, cool, annual monkey flowers out there and you only know Mimulus ringens, uh, what is a monkey flower? Where do they sit taxonomically? Are they related to other kinds of plants? Um, you know, how would you define them?
0: Sure. So they're in this family called Primaceae, and they're kind of, they used to be treated in the figwort family, which is the Scrophulariaceae. and then, um, some work was done, you know, looking at evolutionary relationships, which showed, oh no, they're not Scrophulariaceae at all. They're actually closely related to this weird thing called Fryma, which is a monotypic species Just And it was just kind of off on its own little place in the family tree of lamiales, the related, like the order that encompasses Mm mints. And so there's only about 200 species of monkey flower in the world. They occur worldwide. They're primarily in North America, Western North America. And so they're a group of importance in California and the Western states. But they also occur in South America, in Asia, in Australia, in Africa. They don't occur in Europe naturally, um, although there's some introduced species there. And they are closely related to things like the broomrape family. They're closely related to the Plantagenaceae, which has things like penstemon and all kinds of other excroculary ACEs. <laughs> and so they're in this world of the order Lamiales, which is a pretty big order that has lots of uh, diverse lineages. But they have, you know... Flowers with bilateral symmetry, they have opposite leaves, um, which is sort of broadly lamiales characteristics. And yeah, they are a, quite a special group of plants because they're also highly studied. And so people have mostly studied this group that includes the seat monkey flower, its former name is Mimulus guttatus, and relatives. And so there's a lot of information about them, ecological and genetic information Uh, But there's so many rare ones for which there's very little information or they've been very little studied. So there's lots of opportunities for research in the family, too.
1: Right on. And in terms of that, I mean, how do you go from a a group that, especially in California, is this diverse and has gotten a lot of attention? Where did you start to kind of carve your own niche out of this? Like, what really kind of caught your attention in terms of research interests, early on, at least?
0: Yeah, so I wanted to do a project that incorporated some aspect of conservation biology, and I initially was going to do a project that focused on population genetics, and I wanted to do population genetics of some of the rare monkey flowers, specifically the Kelso Creek monkey flower, and maybe a couple of other species it's related to, and then I thought, well, it'd be nice to know you know, the family tree of this smaller group of monkey flowers that includes the Kelso Creek monkey flower. So it's like, well, I'll do a phylogeny <laughs> and like a side project. And then that just actually kind of blew up in my face and turned into this whole big project where I was looking at all the relatives of the Kelso Creek monkey flower and sampling all these populations. And then I was always I mapping them out and visiting these different locations. I was like, oh, it's really weird that Mimulus palmeri grows, has these populations that are only in Monterey County, but then the next set of populations are all the way in the desert out in Kern County. And there's nothing in between. That's seems weird and so I did a lot of field work I sampled a lot of locations and as a result of my research I discovered and described five new species of monkey flowers whoa yeah so that was really exciting because these this was not on the radar like it was not like someone told me hey Naomi this is there's this really cool group of monkey flowers and I think there's a lot of undescribed species in this clade so it needs a lot of research you should check it out (laughs) like Nobody told me that. I just was like, hey, there's this clade of monkey flowers that seems really cool. And there's a lot of rare ones. I think I'm going to check it out. And it turns out that because they had been understudied, all the names that existed were like primarily all from two taxonomists, Asa Gray, you know, the father of North American botany, and then Adele Grant, who wrote a monograph on monkey flowers in the 1920s. So basically, no one really looked at this group in detail since the 1920s. And so there was a lot to discover and find. And now that we have methods where we can sequence DNA and, you know, gather all this additional information, it brought to light all this diversity that was kind of hiding. I didn't collect these plants for the first time. They had been present in herbaria, but they just weren't recognized as new species. But all the additional research was able to bring it to light. And so now we have five new monkey flowers new to the world with cool new names.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, congrats. That's incredible. But also, it brings up a really cool idea, and it's something that kind of repeats itself throughout a lot of different plant groups, is this idea of maybe cryptic species or stuff that is labeled as like a variant or a subspecies or something like that. And in terms of what you had found, were these species that were slightly different or maybe flowered at a different time, were they obviously different if you held them up next to each other and it was just that no one really, like you said, took the time to look at these? Or is it really just they all look the same, but then you blast the genome and take a look at it and you go, oh, nope, they're not related at all.
0: I think it's actually a combination of all those things because when I first started to realize that there was something more here than what I originally thought I had given presentations that I titled like cryptic species revealed or something. But as I did more research, I recognized that there were morphological traits and other indications that demonstrated like, you know, these are clearly defined taxa. They're separate lineages that are worthy of recognition. But the problem with monkey flowers is when the little annuals, especially when they're squished onto a herbarium sheet you lose a lot of information Mm -hmm. and they don't press very well. And it's really hard to see some of those differences once they're squashed and dry. So it really took me seeing them 3D alive in the field, you know, in their full glory for me to understand what those morphological differences were and how different they actually were. So I couldn't have done that just doing herbarium studies, which in the past, a lot of taxonomic work was done, you know, primarily if you didn't have the time or the funding to do all the field work, you would rely on the herbarium specimens, which are important and valuable, but it's also valuable to get out in the field and to see them in their living context. So what kind of habitats do they grow in and how do those differ between the populations and what are the morphological differences? I had already suspicions that I had five undescribed species And then finally, when I got around to sequencing DNA, and then the family tree revealed that, indeed, they were distinct species, Hmm. then that was just another piece of information that validated or provided evidence that they were species. So I just added that onto the field work that I did to kind of demonstrate that here are five new species, and the family tree supports this.
1: That is so cool. And it's just a big plug for that type of thoroughness with the research. I mean, like you said, herbaria are extremely valuable and important to have, but there is no substitute for field botany, getting out and seeing these plants in the wild, getting a sense at least for the natural history and the context from which they originated. But then also that you don't just go into this with one line of evidence, you piece things together. And if they all kind of confirm it, then you have a much stronger case on your hands that there is something different going on. Exactly. Yeah. So where did these kind of settle out, the, the new species that you named? What I, I guess it's tough because, again, I'm not as familiar with this system as, as you are, but, you know, I guess the bigger question here is is when I learned monkey flowers, I learned Mimulus, and now I know that that is not the case. It does not encompass all species of monkey flowers. So did they sort out in a different genus? Were they in Mimulus? What's, what was the deal with the ones you described?
0: Yeah, that's a story. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> when I, I was a graduate student and I was so excited because i had found these five new monkey flowers and I was so excited to think of new Mimulus names. And then I got invited to collaborate with some other taxonomists to produce a new treatment for monkey flowers for the flora of North America. And so that was really exciting. And in that process, we knew we had a situation on our hands based on prior information. So uh, there was a researcher named Paul Beardsley. So Paul Beardsley, he did his dissertation at the University of Washington, and he was the one who did the research where he basically generated the data to develop the family tree for monkey flowers. In that study, he found that the type species for monkey flowers, which is Mimulus ringens, was actually more closely related to a bunch of Asian and Australian species than it was to the Western North American diversification. Huh. So that provided basically like a dilemma or a problem, like, well, the type species, the name holding species of Mimulus, where the name Mimulus resides, basically if we keep taxonomy the way it is, then Mimulus is polyphyletic, mm-hmm. and that's not ideal. So what are we gonna do? Are we gonna make a big giant Mimulus and basically make the whole family Mimulus or are we gonna kind of break out different genera? So there was a lot of deliberation and debate, and it kind of was, felt very controversial, and it turns out that it was. <laughs> um, so we decided to recognize and resurrect some other genera. So the genus Mimulus was reduced to about seven species, and then basically everything in Western North America that wasn't closely related to the type species got put into largely one of two genera. There's this clade called the Erythranthi clade, and then a clade called the Diplicus clade, and they're old names that we resurrected. But the whole thing that makes it also contra so people are very attached to their names. Oh, yes. And so I recognize that Erythranthi doesn't roll off the tongue, you know, as easily as Mimulus does. Um, but it was the only name available for that clade that was like the ap- appropriate name that was the earliest available name. So it's not like I dug up the ugliest name and thought, <laughs> to slap it on this group um it was just that was the the name to to partition diversity in the way we which we wanted to recognize it that was a appropriate name to place on that clade and it means red flower in greek Um, and so mimulus cardinalis or Erythranthe cardinalis is the type species which is the cardinal monkey flower which has beautiful red hummingbird pollinated flowers yeah, so it it was um unexpected. It was not something I thought or knew was going to happen over the course of my dissertation and then it happened in the middle of my PhD work and I was a part of it. So once I was describing the five new species, then they're like, "Well, I'm making five new Erythranthe species and not Mimulus species." Hmm. So that so yeah, that was that happened. <laughs>
1: It's funny that, you know you say that have. I mean, that's a big shift, and that's really exciting, too. but again, it's it's not without controversy. And nothing gets my readers slash listeners more upset than a post or a topic about name changes. And it's like you said, people really like the names they grew up learning, and they especially like names that roll off the tongue a little bit easier. But it's not like this was something that was willy-nilly. um, you know, there's support for it biologically, evolutionarily speaking. And it, there's rules that have to be followed. Otherwise, the whole binomial nomenclature thing goes out the window, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So we were, um, you know, adhering to like the rules of priority and also the rules based on, you know, so there's a type species for the genus and the name follows the type species. So there's all these like nomenclatural rules. And so all those rules kind of guided and dictated how the diversity would be recognized. But then also in addition, I think something that's really important that this name change has brought to light that there are actually two separate lineages that have diversified in Western North America, the diplocus group and the Erythranthe group when, before they were all treated as mimulus and they, there are morphological features that can distinguish them. So you can keep them out, you can distinguish them, you can learn to recognize an erythranthe in the field or a diplocus in the field. It's very doable. And I'm seeing lots of field botanists out there on Instagram and other, you know, iNaturalist and other social media venues that they're really learning to identify the different genera. And so I think it helps people Kind of understand diversity better because now we know that Mimulus ringens is not closely related to Mimulus guttatus. They're actually pretty distantly related, and that well, it's now Erythranthe guttatus, and that Erythranthe guttatus and Diplicus arenanticus are also very distantly related, and that there are morphological characters that support the recognition of them as separate lineages.
1: Right on, yeah, and and you bring up a really good point, right? This is the story of diversity, and taxonomy, first and foremost, is trying to tell that story. Now, no human system is perfect, and things are going to change. Taxonomy, as we develop better technologies and new areas of the genome to look at, it's kind of a moving target. But to think that it's only here for our enjoyment slash convenience is kind of missing the whole point in general, is that it's our attempt, however imperfect or perfect we can get it, at understanding evolution and diversity and that is understanding biodiversity and that's something that i think everyone can agree absolutely matters and and absolutely must be tended to you know that there's a recent publication that says like a million species on our planet are on the verge of extinction and if we're naming three species one thing or don't even realize that there's multiple species in there that's that's a dangerous precedent to set
0: yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that the job of the taxonomist is to uh, bring diversity to light so that we could well for, for one, I for me, I so I I'm an I I am a taxonomist in application, but my taxonomy informs conservation, and that's why I really appreciate the science of taxonomy, because I also have these interests towards conservation. And so To understand what diversity exists on our planet and to be able to provide names to that so that they can actually be protected is really important because you can't protect anything unless it has a name. It needs some kind of name and legal status. And I feel like the, the duty of the taxonomist to translate what we know about evolutionary history and biology and then to apply names appropriately so that it conveys a name conveys so much more information than just the simple binomial. It tells you about who it's related to. And, and so that tells you more about, you know, when you think about the genus Mimulus. When I first started, there was like this concept that was, the genus Mimulus was had over 200 species, but we actually, in the process of breaking them up into different genera, we also resurrected many species that hadn't been recognized in a long time. So the genus Erythranthe alone, Um, comprises something like 150 species. And so it's the majority of the diversity within the primaceae. And so just to understand how that diversity is partitioned between the genera, I think, conveys important information.
1: Certainly. And again, it's it's not perfect. These things are going to change. And there certainly are people that abuse this system, but it's our job to identify those as abusing the practice, not necessarily, you know, demonizing the practice in itself. But in thinking about diversity, Obviously, this is a group that I'm just now learning is way more diverse than I ever thought. And in terms of what you think about in terms of taxonomy and evolutionary relationships and what's really driving diversification in the groups that you're most familiar with, I mean, is it geology? Is it sort of pollinator isolation? I mean, what's driving diversity in the monkey flowers that you're most familiar with?
0: I think it's like a whole slew of things. And it really depends on, you can look at many different lineages within the larger monkey flower family and find that there is speciation occurring at you know very local scales that there's adaptation to different substrates to to the climate especially many of them are annuals so they have very short generation time so that provides an opportunity for populations you know to adapt maybe at a faster pace than longer lived perennial species and i think the topographic heterogeneity and geology in california has provided a landscape for monkey flowers to really diversify across the whole you know West really because I think the monkey the story of the monkey flowers reflects or is very similar to other lineages in the West because they're all operating in this very heterogeneous environment climate wise in terms of topography and substrate that really provide lots of opportunities for adaptation and isolation and for them to speciate so
1: yeah California is the perfect storm for botanical uh, diversification and radiation, I guess. <laughs> That's exciting. So in thinking about diversity, though, and again, going back to this idea of conservation, you mentioned how much of this is rooted in the desire to conserve as much as possible. So what really is the threats to a lot of these monkey flowers? I realize it's probably as varied as there are species, but, uh, you know, what's, what are they facing in terms of the, the environmental and ecological threats to their ongoing persistence?
0: So there are two monkey flowers that are presumed extinct in California, and both of them occur on the Channel Islands. Mm. And the Channel Islands of California were largely impacted by the introduction of different animals like sheep and deer. And so definitely the change in the environment on the Channel Islands, the introduction of invasive species really brought about whole landscape scale change that provided an environment where the monkey flowers probably couldn't compete very well. So that's one thing I have observed about a lot of the annual monkey flowers is that they're very poor competitors and they occur in environments where it's very open and there's not a lot of co-occurring species. So they they don't like to be crowded out. So once invasive species come in, then they can easily outcompete these very delicate annual monkey flowers. So invasive species are a pretty big problem. But. Invasive species are usually brought in by various disturbances that humans have brought in, including development and just general degradation of the habitat. So that might be the addition of like roads or volunteer trails and mining and cattle grazing and basically like any use you can think about on the land that might bring about invasive species or kind of degrade the habitat will be a a big impact to the annual monkeyflowers, and I would say that well, there's of monkeyflower diversity. Like over half of the species are annuals, Man. and then there's a large percentage of perennial, herbaceous perennials, and very only like six percent of the whole family are shrubby species, and it's the shrubby bush monkeyflowers. Whoa! There's just a small number of woody taxa, oh. and they're just they're one lineage, and they've been treated as one species to like twelve species. Oh. And it's all like they're all closely related to one another, but they're mostly a herbaceous group. And so I would say just total habitat conversion is the main issue. And that's the story of, I would say, conservation in California is that we've had a lot of development. I mean, I grew up here in the Los Angeles Basin, and it's pretty much a concrete megalopolis. And... There are very few native plants that can coexist in this environment in any kind of natural way. And plants don't do very well competing with concrete and yeah. cement and houses. It's just very expansive urban sprawl, especially in Southern California, where there's a large portion of like diversity in California and the threatened species. The threatened species especially occur in Southern California because that's where the people live. The, the majority of the population of California is in the southern half. So
1: Right. Yeah, and I mean, that's the sad case for so many places. It's wherever humans really like to be. Generally, that's at the expense of natural communities. But going back to what we kind of had talked about earlier on in our conversation, you're at a botanical garden. Botanical gardens grow plants. And, and you have this mission, aside from all of the science you're doing, to help reintroduce people in these urban-suburban settings to something natural. And, and in a lot of ways, growing plants can be a really great way of protecting them or at least safeguarding some of that genetic diversity. I mean, are these monkey flowers, are they, do they lend well to cultivation or is it like some would do better than others? Like some probably need very specific conditions. Others might be generalist. I mean, is this something where despite the sprawl, people can maybe offer up something into like a hobbyist perspective on conservation?
0: Yeah. Some of them are much easier to propagate than others, especially the species that occur in more wetland areas. Those seeds readily germinate pretty easily. So um, the cardinal monkey flower that I mentioned earlier, Erythranthe cardinalis, and the seed monkey flower, Erythranthi gutta, you can easily germinate those seeds. And, and in fact, those make really great garden plants, and people will definitely utilize those in their gardens, as well as the shrubby bush monkey flowers are very, very popular amongst hobbyists and gardeners. Um, they also tend not to be the most threatened and endangered, the more common and cosmopolitan species. A lot of the rare annuals are adapted to very arid. There's so A lot of them are desert species and or they occur like in the high Sierra Nevada. There's lots of rare ones in the Sierra Nevada. And the growing conditions for those are much less well known. And a lot of the monkey flowers, the seeds form a along with Soil Seed Bank. And so they have pretty strong dormancy mechanisms. And so to get them to trigger them to Germany can be just like doing mental gymnastics, trying to figure out what kind of cue to give them. You know, should we give them liquid smoke? Should we do cold stratification? Should Which kind of treatment should we give them? Is it just gibberellic acid, just like soak them in gibberellic acid because they're really difficult to germinate. And so that's been one of the difficulties in my research is that I've wanted to do a lot of studies bringing them into a nursery setting to say do cross pollinations and or common garden studies. And I have found that many of them are difficult to grow. And so even though some researchers have found some good recipes and methods to germinate those seeds, it just takes time and patience for like optimizing your protocol. So I haven't had the luxury of time to do nursery studies on some of these because they're difficult to grow. But I've been actively collecting seeds and we have a seed bank here at the garden to store seeds offsite for conservation purposes as sort of a Noah's Ark. You know, we're building the Noah's Ark of seeds for California, which is sort of a backstop mechanism to hopefully conserve plants offsite in the case of some kind of catastrophe. And so we have a lot of monkey flower seeds in our seed bank, which is great. And so we now need to figure out how to germinate all of them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, step one, uh, good. Step two, we'll see. Um, But that's incredible. And that's really, really important. Because if we at all want to, at some point, try to put these pieces back together or just make sure these species are still around, we're going to have to figure out how to grow them. And, And kind of putting all of the pieces together from what you've told us you know, here are plants that are often very specific in their habitat, already not that common, require very specific things to germinate, often the sort of windows of opportunity are few and far between. It just sounds like this, the, the lifestyle of a lot of these plants uh, already sets them up for um, some issues when it comes to living in this human-dominated planet. Uh, and, and so it's really important that, you know, we're not only just studying them, we're doing something to try and conserve them into the future.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I feel like that's what I hope my life's work will be is that we have plants here in California that are occur nowhere else in the world. Oh, many of the monkey flowers that occur in California only occur in California and nowhere else in the world. And they are such a treasure and joy to know and to be able to share that so so that future generations can know and understand this incredible diversity. I think is a very important thing to pass on. And so the first step is really just to protect land. Right. We have so many public lands in California. We're very fortunate in that way that we do have a lot of protected lands. And then hopefully we can avoid causing future extinction. We already have you know many species in Southern California that have already gone extinct, including the two monkey flowers that I mentioned earlier. And we hope that we can prevent that into the future.
1: Yeah, right on. noble cause. Um, and thinking about all of the work you've done with monkey flowers, this might be a difficult question to ask, but do you have a favorite or favorites? Oh, oh
0: my gosh. <laughs> Depends on the day of the week. I have a different flavor. Monkey is like a different flavor every day because there's so many. It's like, which one to choose? I'd say my current favorite today is going to be the Red Rock Canyon monkey flower, which it, it's an, a species that I named. Its name is Erythranthe rhodopetra. So rhodopetra meaning red rock because nice. it occurs at red State Park. And I'm doing some further research on it because there is a fellow that I know who found some populations that look like the Red Rock Canyon monkey flower, but occur at a higher elevation in different habitat, like maybe 40 miles away as the crow flies. And I looked at the plant material he sent me under a uh, scanning electron microscope. Well, at first I looked at them just under the dissecting scope and I saw that they had these crazy trichomes and I was like, this is weird. And so I'm hoping to do some additional research because I think it could actually be an undescribed species, which totally throws me for a loop because I remember very clearly being asked when I was defending my dissertation, my committee asked me, they said, well, so what do you think? Do you think that in this clade that you studied that there are any more undescribed species out there, you found five. And I thought, oh, gosh, that would be a slim chance. (laughs) Because I looked at all the herbarium records, and I just can't, I don't even know where that would be. And so here we are. And this is very clearly a monkey flower in the group that I studied that could be an undescribed monkey flower. And I'm just kind of Dumbfounded by that. I was like, ah, there's so much that we don't know. And I studied this for however many years of my life, and I thought I knew these plants like the back of my hand. And lo and behold, someone shows me a specimen that I know is in this group, and I'm like, whoa, where did this come from? And so that demonstrated to me you can be the specialist in something so specific and study it for several years and think that you know so much about it and then someone can show you something that will blow your mind and you're like I didn't even know I was not seeing that coming
1: <laughs> uh nature will always throw us curveballs that is yeah. such a cool anecdote to kind of share with anyone interested in this sorts of stuff and and it's good that you know these are things that are exciting it's not like oh, I'm wrong no it's it's like ooh, something new I get to familiarize myself with something I didn't even know existed
0: yep exactly and that's what's I'm so excited to keep doing it into the future because I'm like what will the monkey flower show me tomorrow Surprise me <laughs> show something new uh,
1: well I can't think of a better position for someone such as yourself to be in then so congrats on that um, but if people want to find out more about your work or find out more about monkey flowers I mean how do you recommend they reach out and find out more about you?
0: Well, I am available on a variety of forums. As you mentioned, I love to share my plant photos on Instagram, and so I am Naomi Bot on Instagram and I am doing a lot of field work right now with um, some students I'm advising. And so I'm out just exploring the California flora and t- my Instagram is just loaded with plants. And then I'm also on Twitter, the same handle, Naomi Bot. And there I really like to do little tweet storms and share information about plant diversity of California and Various monkey flower controversies that are ongoing.
1: <laughs> Ooh, monkey flower controversy.
0: <laughs> and then I also have a website that you can get to at monkeyflower.org that has uh, my publications, and you can learn more about my research there.
1: Great. And I will be putting links up to all of those on the show notes for this episode. And good job on getting that domain name. I think I said that in our first correspondence, but uh, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: I also owned M-I-M-U-L dot U-S.
1: <laughs> oh! Ho, ho. <laughs> Wow,
0: I haven't figured out what to do with that one yet. <laughs>
1: well, just sit on that one for a while. That one's too much of a gem to uh, squander that opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Fraga, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. Keep it up. And uh, yeah, we all look forward to following the monkey flower story as it evolves.
0: Well, thank you so much. It was my pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks.
1: Yeah. You have yourself a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. That was great. Who knew monkey flowers were so diverse? Well, Obviously, Dr. Fraga did, but I sure as hell didn't. I learned a lot from that conversation, and I can't wait to Google all of the cool monkey flowers that live in California. But yes, land conservation. I can't say that enough. If you want to do something for the plight of this planet, go find your nearest land conservancy and show them some support. Volunteer, give them money, whatever it takes. We got to protect land. Also, grow some plants. Bring them into your backyards. The more native plants you plant, the better off the ecosystem will be in the long run. We really can't afford to ignore that. All right, everyone, that's it for this week. I thank you all for listening. So many great things on the horizon, as always. But, of course, make sure you're checking out not only our Patreon, but also the shop, indefensiveplants.com shop, all of the cool apparel and other items we have for sale over at teespring.com slash stores slash indefensiveplants. And at the very least, consider subscribing to and reviewing this podcast on whatever pod portal you use to download it. Until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.